Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoy the message. Hey, let's open up your Bibles to John chapter 5. As um, Pastor Chad was leading us in prayer, I would imagine that as he described some of the life scenarios that frequently come into uh, this environment, some of you probably resonated with it. There are, there are probably some folks here that uh, your circumstances seem hopeless. And getting up out of the bed today was a chore. Coming to worship was hard. And if that describes you, what we will look at today in John chapter 5 is a word of hope. But also in John chapter 5, we will learn of people who were so caught up in religious traditions, the religious bureaucracy, the rules and regulations, that they lost the joy. For them, it was a matter of, let's make sure all of these things are checked off do all the duties that uh, that really had nothing to do with biblical principles. It was based on preferences. It was based on people's opinions that for them, a fresh movement of God was overlooked and they couldn't celebrate it. There might be some in this room that describes you. And the message from John 5, if you get, for those of us who get caught in the legalism, is that Christ has come to set us free. So when we look at John 5, uh, what I, what I want to do is we're going to read the Scripture, and then I want to drop you in, and I want you to use your imaginations today. I want, I want to take you into what life was like in this situation. Now, as we read John chapter 5, in some of your Bibles, some translations, you'll get to verse 4 and you'll say, wait a minute, where did it go? Uh, or you'll see a bracket. Uh, for some translations, verse 4 is inside of a bracket. And in some translations, verse 4 is removed and it's found at the, the very bottom uh, of, of your Bible. Uh, and I'll explain why that is in just a moment. So let's look at John chapter 5. And I'm going to read out of the Holman Standard, uh, whatever translation you prefer, go ahead. You'll also see the uh, verses on the screen. So you ready? After this, a Jewish festival took place. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. In Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethsaida in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a multitude of the sick, the blind the lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, someone goes down ahead of me. 
Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your bedroll and walk. Instantly, the man got up, picked up his bedroll, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your bedroll. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your bedroll and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick up your bedroll and walk? They asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you're well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So, what do we learn about, from John chapter 5 that, that conveys a sense of hope? What do we learn from John chapter 5 that warns us against uh, legalism? Well, let's start with uh, the narrative of what was the setting. Now, in some of your Bibles, at the very top, the top heading, does it, do you see a reading that said the third sign, healing the paralytic, notation at the very top? Uh, it might or might not. Uh, but what you'll find when you read the book of John, that there are seven signs. This is the third sign. And this sign really propelled Jesus into public ministry. That's important for you to know and understand what was the purpose of a sign. A sign was usually a miraculous event, something unordinary, something spectacular that pointed to the identity of who Jesus was. And so when Jesus did a sign, it was to indicate that he was more than just a man, that he was God in flesh, he was God incarnate, and that he had the power to forgive sin. He had the power to heal the sick. He had the power over the, the, the created nature. And then finally, in John chapter 11, we read, he had power over death itself when he raised Lazarus. So when you read John, you will see the notation of a sign. This is the third. And, but then you'll notice that little phrase says, after this. Well, that's a time reference. So what you need to do is go back up into the, in John and you read what happened before. You read the conversation with Nicodemus. That verse that we know uh, about, for God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. It takes us into that, that encounter with the woman at a well who thought that she was beyond grace. She thought that she was so bad that there was no hope. And then it takes us to the healing of the Galilean official's child. And so after this, doesn't give us specific days, but it kind of sets it in the historic narrative. And then you'll notice about the religious festival, the Jewish festival. In Jewish history, there were seven significant Jewish festivals, three of which required every Jewish male to come back into Jerusalem to celebrate. It's kind of like this. For us, those of us who are adults and on our own, you remember whenever your mama said, yeah, you might be married, you might have children, but you're showing up at my house? That's that, right? 
And so it was a festival that all the Jewish men would show up. We're not sure exactly which one. It could have been part of Passover. We're not sure, but it's this Jewish festival. So what John does is says, okay, let me, let me frame the time. But then he gives us a sense of what was going on in that day in this narrative. And you'll notice he talks about the pool. There, and actually archaeologists have found the exact pool that is referenced in John chapter 5. Now in this pool, a legend grew that if you got there first, when the waters bubbled, you'll be healed. Probably what happened is it was fed by a natural spring. And so probably what happened is the spring caused the water to bubble. Now you remember I told you before we read the scripture that there's a side note. So in some of your Bibles, this verse is in brackets or it might be taken to the bottom. What we know is that in some of the most ancient, most reliable manuscripts, this little phrase was not there. And the belief is that a scribe put it on the side margins to describe the belief, the legend of the day, and it kind of filtered into the scripture later on. So for whatever reason, this legend occurred, that belief that if you got there first, you would be healed. But now when you go into the pool, let's, let's, let's put ourselves sitting as a bystander, looking at the people around talks about the people there, the blind, the lame, the sick. There wasn't a few, there were hundreds. There was the person that probably had an undiagnosed disease that came out of desperation. There was a person there that had a fever and he was probably sitting trying to stay in the edge of a shadow just to get out of the sun but still hoped to make it to the pool. The blind, who I suspect were sitting on the edge of the, of the pool, hoping that maybe if it bubbled, somebody would get them in. There's the lame or the paralytic who did not have the power to get in the pool on their own, on their own ability. Basically, what they had to do was crawl over those who were weaker in hopes of getting there. Sounds hopeless, doesn't it? And then, in the next part of the narrative, you see that Jesus singles out a guy, and we don't know why. He approaches one guy. There's speculation of why he did it, but we really don't know why. Jesus chose this one guy for that day. But whenever we look into his life, we realize that the challenges of mobility, the challenge of making a livelihood, the challenges of hygiene, the challenges of life itself had to be overwhelming. He relied on people to carry him from place to place. And if someone didn't carry him, can you imagine him crawling through the streets to get anywhere in the city? For a livelihood, he would rely on family or friends, but more than likely, he had to rely on begging and pleading for people to give him money. You can imagine what his hands looked like as he drug himself through the streets. 
Jesus came to this guy. Now here's a principle for us. Jesus does not reach out to those who are spiritually on margin and are socially safe. Instead, he shows up in the heartbreaks of life. Society had turned their backs on these people. They didn't want to deal with them. They were dirty. It stunk. It was uncomfortable. But that's the very people that Jesus went to. Their neediness looked so overwhelming that somehow Jesus brought hope. Now, what does this mean to us? Is that we as a church are to follow the patterns that Jesus modeled. And the very people that we, that Jesus engaged, we're to engage. The very people that Jesus opened his arm to, we're to open our arms to. That's one of the great reasons that we birthed the Real Life Center. And what we did with the Real Life Center is that we realized that in this county, in this area, there are deep seeds of poverty. Now, for most of you, you live in the bubble, right? We live in the bubble. Now, I don't. I live over in Fairburn. You know, we got to have passports to get over the interstate, okay? We're getting indoor plumbing. We're, we're excited. New things are coming to Fairburn. But don't we live in a bubble? But yet, if we drove just a little bit into Fayette County, we would see poverty that would shock us. If we drove a little bit into Coweta County, we would see poverty that would bother us. And it is those cultures, those people who are without hope because their fundamental question is this, what am I going to eat today? That is why we started the Real Life Center, is to bring hope to those without hope. And not only do we bring food, but here's the other thing that is the most important. We bring Jesus Christ into their situation. Some of you need to be part of it. In fact, every one of you need to engage a Real Life Center. You need to be part of what's happening there. But i tell you something else. Some of you parents of teenagers, to help them see what life is really like outside the bubble, you need to go take them to Guyana. Sign them up, go to Guyana, and see what poverty is life like in that country, which is really representative of what we see around the world. Jesus went. We also know that there are people who come into this room every week, and while you might not physically resemble the paralytic, inside, inside, that sure is a picture of you. There are a lot of people that come into our worship services, and, and they, they have this overwhelming sense of hopelessness and asking the question, does anybody care about my situation, and is God able to meet the challenges that I'm, that I'm dealing with? And the answer to that is yes. We are willing to walk with people in whatever circumstances you're facing. In fact, in, in your uh, seat, right in front of you, do this for me. Pull out this uh, pastoral care card. You see it? 
pull it out. These are the ministries that we are launching to help people that are hurting and wounded. You'll even notice on the back side of it, live the promise. Do you see that? We have a guy in our church, a giant of a man named Larry Andrews, who in his retirement has such a burden for kids in this county that have no home. He's trying to mobilize us to open our homes to foster care. This guy, Larry, check this out, in his retirement, every month he drives from here to Augusta to meet with a kid in foster care. He's an awesome guy. But even there, we're trying to reach into the areas of life that, are, that we would say, there's the, the people that are hurting, that are wounded. This is what we're doing in pastoral care. The other thing we do, we're going to do, if you open your bulletins, that mental section, open your bullet, go ahead and do it. Here's what we're doing. We're going to host a mental health conference here. We're going to host a mental health conference. The reason is, is that a lot of people live with mental health challenges in life. And what we want to do is take the stigma away. Now, you might live with depression, but you're still a person of dignity and worth. And when I've introduced this to people, to folks, you'd be amazed at the number of folks that have come to me and said, you know what? Man, my mom or my dad, that, that, they lived with depression all of their life. And the church kind of just turned their back on them. Well, what we want to do is bring hope hard places. In fact, that's what we call our pastoral care ministry, hope. And so as we, we, we minister to people in all aspects of life, we as a church, we don't bring the cure. We can't do it. All we can do is bring care. But my buddy Dennis Palmer says this, we are the caregivers. Jesus Christ is the cure. And we certainly believe that. But there are some folks, you know, you're in a situation and you say, okay, how do I live today? I want to talk to you about God's preserving grace. Some of you who are good friends of ours, you will know that Karen and I been on a really tough journey uh, here of late. Uh, it's, it's been hard. Uh, emotions, that uh, situation that's just tough. But in this moment, I am learning that God gives a sustaining grace that is absolutely beautiful. Paul talked about his life in 2 Corinthians 12, and Paul was, uh, had something. We don't know what exactly it was, but it was heavy. And he beg, begged God three times to remove it. God didn't. But he gave Paul this, this word. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect. In my journey this year, this is the verse that I'm living around in my life. And I've had a number of people that come to my office and they share their painful journey. Guess where I take them? I take them 
that in the middle of life, when life seems to come off hinge, there is a God that cares. There is a God that enables you to face life when you thought that you couldn't do it. There is a preserving grace. There is. I think the most important thing we give you is community. As people come into our, this place, and they just want to know, does anybody care? Oh, absolutely. Perry Noble was the pastor of the largest church in South Carolina. And because of an issue related to alcohol abuse in 2016, he had to step away from the pulpit. I was thrilled to hear that a couple weeks ago, he came back and he preached. But in his sermon, he said this, I chose isolation over community. I was a hypocrite. I preached, you can't do life alone, and then went out and lived the opposite. Isolation is where self-pity dominate my thinking, thus justifying my abuse of alcohol. Isolation is where self-doubt dominated my emotions, causing me to believe that I, could, I just could not carry the weight anymore. And alcohol was necessary for me to make it through another day. Listen, when life gets upside down, you run to community. In this church are a number of people. We are, we're not perfect people. We all have stuff around us. But in this church, you find grace. In this church are small communities of people that get together and they support one another and they encourage one another. Is that not right, Dogwood? You guys came out a little weaker than the 915. So I'm going to give you all a chance to outshine 915. Would you not agree that this is a place of healing? a place of hope, a place of restoration. You don't have to do life alone. But then, here comes the next idea. Jesus, Jesus looked at him and he said, hey, do you want to be healed? Now, I looked at that question, I thought, really? You remember Bill Ingball that did the little routine that says, here's your sign? And so when somebody says something so foolish to you, it's kind of indication of their spiritual capacity, you know, that kind of thing. So like if you ever have a flat tire and somebody comes up and says, tire's flat? Yeah, okay. So look at this, that why in the world would Jesus ask the question, do you want to be healed? Of course he wanted to be healed. Or did he? You see, we know some people that are trapped in self-destructive behaviors that really don't want to get better. You know of people that you will say to them, hey, if you want to experience life, you've got to change. And they said, Hi, I'm good where I am. So there's a fundamental choice, a quick question for us. Do you really want to be healed? And are you willing to accept the healing that Christ offers? So we know that every week as we gather, there are some folks that are right on that edge of, of becoming a follower of Christ. You're right there at that point and say, you know what, I, I'm really thinking about it, 
but I'm not there. And so we would say, you know, there's still spiritual sickness. There's still, uh, the, the sin dominates in our lives. You live a life that's, uh, you have unforgiven sin. You've got to make a choice. Do you want to be healed? And if you want to receive Christ today, man, we'd love to talk to you. But even for us who are followers of Christ, that's a good question. Because for us, as we get into our faith, we realize that all of a sudden there, there, there's some things that emerge that hinder us from the life that Christ has for us. You see, the Bible says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus brings to us. John 10, 10. But the reality is, is that for some of us, that, there, that our faith is a joyless kind of thing. That there doesn't seem a presence of God in our life. And what we see is that as we go, we realize that there, there's sometimes some things of bitterness that take root in us, in our hearts. And you will say, well, I'm justified. You know, this person hurt me. I ought to be bitter. And I ought to not be able to forgive this person. No, no. The Bible says what about forgiveness? That we're to forgive. Because what happens is, is that that unforgiving heart, that bitterness spirit, all of those things rob us of the joy that Christ has for us. It says, do you really want to be healed? And then later on, he says, go and sin no more. And so, what that does show us is the true nature of his mission. See, some people are of the opinion that Jesus came to be kind of like my genie in the bottle. Just call him when I need him. Or to assume that Jesus wants me to be rich or healthy. The health-wealth gospel that is so prevalent in our culture is, I, I'm of the belief it doesn't say what it says. The mission of Jesus is that of redemption. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. So here we are, we, again, we go back into our lives, and you know, when we come to faith, there are some things in our lives that it's obvious. You know, there's obvious, that, that, that's sinful, and we deal with it. But have you noticed as we get older that God kind of reveals some other things to us? And that really happens till the day we die. Says, bring it to me. Ask forgiveness, restoration, repent of it, and I can give you life. You know, there's some folks that 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 they're they're followers of Christ, and and they're in a sinful situation, a sinful pattern of life. They know it. And they say, well, where's, where's the joy? Where's the presence of God? Well, sometimes you have to deal with what is obvious as the barrier to your faith journey. But here's the beautiful image. When we do that, let me take you to John 8. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery? And Jesus protected her from the legalist, right? And she looked at him and he said, Basically said, look at me. Look at me. 
I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And many of us, we live in this spirit of guilt. And you need to know that Jesus said, I condemn you no more. Isn't that a beautiful promise? So then we get into the last narrative. The last narrative had to do with the legalist. Now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk in church without getting in trouble. It's always good. Just put yourself in that situation again. You knew this paralytic 38 years, right? You got it? Went to high school with him. Knew he wasn't joking around. You're sitting there, and all of a sudden, let's just give him a name. Let's call him Bubba. Good southern name. You see Bubba walking. What would you say at that moment? Give it to me. Was that good? What? He has a good doctor. Okay, that's good. What else would you say? Praise the Lord. What are you doing? What happened? I would have gone, hmm, didn't expect to see that today. Now you would expect if people saw that, they would say something in the affirmative, right? Something amazing. You see what the legalist said? Boy, what are you doing carrying that mat? You better put that thing down or we're going to get all over you. Can you imagine? And so you say, what was the deal? Well, it, it, it happened on the Sabbath. And so our pastor's going to come back in a couple weeks and he's going to talk more about the Sabbath. But it happened on the Sabbath. And to them, that was what he was doing was a violation of their laws. Now, here's what the Sabbath was for. God created the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day when they worshiped and rested. And some of you need to get your arms around the Sabbath. You got the worship part, but you can't figure out the resting part. So let me give you, thus saith Jay, when you leave today, your job is not to turn on the computer. Your job is to go home and take a nap. So by biblical authority, all of God's people said, amen. Okay, why? We, we got to have rest, and a lot of you are not really healthy because you don't rest. You need to have it. So let's all just say, four o'clock, I'm napping. Hey, don't call. But then the legalists got around it. And, and they wanted to put their own prohibitions around it. They wanted to protect the Sabbath. They wanted to put a hedge around it with stuff that, that they made up. So let me give you an example. In that day, you could not look in the mirror because you might be tempted to pluck a gray hair out and by plucking the gray hair out, that was work. Oh, boy, some of y'all be plucking all day, right? 
You could not spit on the ground because if you spit on the ground, you might be tempted to kind of wipe that saliva in the ground and you would then be considered of, of doing some toil, kind of cultivating the soil. You could not walk a thousand feet from your house. So what did they do? They took rope and they tied it around the, the post of their house. And then they went out and they tied it around something else and they went out and tied it around something else and they went around and tied it around something else. And they said that by extension, as long as that rope was tied to my house, that rope and all the way out is an extension of my house, so I'm okay. And then when I got to the end of the rope, I could go a thousand feet. So look, if you're looking at loopholes, might be a problem. We look at these guys and say, what, what really is going on? Because our natural tendency is to want rules, not grace. And in that day, kind of like in, in our day today, the people who are defined as good religious people were considered the, the list keepers. Dogma. They had nothing to do with the Bible. And even better is if you can become a rule giver. And what have, we've noticed is that the rule givers it's usually based on personal preference rather than anything to do with what the Bible says. And the reason that we do that is that we want to boast about all that we did to earn merit from God, which is exactly the opposite of the gospel. And some of the most vicious people that show up in churches are people who've lost the sense of living in grace and want to impose their rules on other people. They can't celebrate when somebody comes to Christ. They can't celebrate it when God does an incredible activity if it comes out of their very limited perspective. When I worked with the Georgia Baptist Convention, I was working the far southwest corner of our state. Have any of you have been to Iron City? If you've been to Iron City, you, you are way out in the wilderness. Iron City. And this church wanted to do something that would involve their students. So on Wednesday night, um, they started a service for teenagers. Now in that area, if you have 20 students show up, that's good. You know, that, that's good. And that's basically what they were having. But there's some other people that were in the adult side who were singing the old ancient hymns of the Stamp Baxter hymn book. And they wondered why kids didn't want to involve themselves in that. They got upset. They lost control. They had drums. But they shut it down. God was doing something over here. But because they couldn't control it, they shut it down. That does happen in church, doesn't it? One author said of this situation, 
They wanted rules. They did not want God's grace. They wanted human merit instead. They did not want the simplicity of the life in grace. They did not want divine pardon. What they really wanted was something that they can make for themselves. So as the worship team is coming back on our platform, I encourage you to do a little self-examination right now. A lot of ways that we can apply this, this passage of Scripture. First one is for those who are wounded, those who are hurting, those who feel hopeless. My invitation to you is if, and I had a couple of folks this morning that took me up on it, said, hey, can we talk? On your communication card, put your contact information. Hey, and I talked to Pastor Jay, or one of our pastors at Dogwood. You'll put it in the offering basket. You're not without hope. The second thing I think that would help us is let's just do a serious self-examination. Do you really want to be healed? And so it could be that, oh, I'm, I'm missing out. I, I, I just think that there's some things that I'm missing in my spiritual walk. I've lost the joy. I've lost the sense of Christ's presence in my life. It might be a good thing to do to, to examine carefully this morning and bring it to the throne of grace. There might be some that say, you know, I don't understand what this means to be a, a, a Christian, but I would love to talk to somebody. You, you put that in a communication card, and we'll respond. In fact, there'll be some folks at this table to my right that will talk to you about any spiritual decision you like to talk about. But let's also look, have we lost the sense of grace and are we doing things in our own way? Have we become legalists? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that in moments when we feel we can't go any further, you're present. Thank you, Lord, for your preserving grace. Thank you, Lord, for a community of Christians who love on each other and encourage one another. So, Lord, now we ask that you guide our decisions. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword Dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and more.